0: Richard, can you introduce yourself?
1: Good evening, my name is Richard Wheatley. I am a visually impaired magic player from England. I have been playing magic for about a year and a half now. My favourite colour is red, and the sky is not green.
0: Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode 19, and I'm talking to Richard Wheatley, a Magic player from the UK. Richard has been featured on Daily MTG, The Nerdist, Reddit, Imager, and StarCityGames.com for playing in pre-releases with brailled sleeves. Richard is visually impaired, and his love of the game keeps him motivated to learn all the cards from the new set so that he uses mental magic to keep his concentration of the board state. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Richard Wheatley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. My name is Sam Tang, and I am your host. This week, we're here with Richard Wheatley. Richard, how are you? Hi, Sam. I'm very well, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. And you are out there in the UK right now. Yes, I am. Lancaster, England. And where is Lancaster, England?
1: It's right up in the north. It's currently, we're in the middle of a... Uh, a very summery English day, which is to say uh, there's nearly been floods. <laughs> We've been had quite the, some of the heaviest rain for several weeks.
0: What do you do, Richard?
1: Uh, I have been a third year physicist at Lancaster University, which is why I'm in Lancaster at the moment. I'm originally from London, but I have finished my final exam. So barring any resits uh, and touching wood, Um, I will not have to take an exam ever again, which is something I've not been able to say for some time.
0: That is amazing. Congratulations on that. Uh, It's quite exciting. That's great. And when did you start playing Magic?
1: Uh, I started playing Magic
0: uh, at
1: the beginning of my second year at university. Uh So um, nearly two years ago, about a year year and three quarters ago now. um, I have been playing Yu-Gi-Oh! before that. Uh, I went to a boarding school for the visually impaired... Uh, from the age of 11 through to 18. And it was like a a boarding school with um, a very sort of closed community of blind people. And right back in my year seven, someone showed me how to braille up the card protector sleeves and use that to play Yu-Gi-Oh! Initially, you tried brailing the cards and realized it just destroys the cards. Mm -hmm. So we brailled um, and sort of got shown how to shorten everything. Everything has to be abbreviated because Braille is pretty large compared to normal size print. Uh-huh. So you've got to keep abbreviating everything. So someone showed me how to do that with Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Then the next five years, there were two of us in the school who played Yu-Gi-Oh. We played each other over and over again, um, really enjoyed it. And then we started meeting people who had played Yu-Gi-Oh in the intervening time, and they used things which were totally, utterly broken uh, as far as we were concerned. Yu-Gi-Oh! had moved on a long way. Uh, there'd been a, lo- a, mu- a massive amount of power creep. And so I sort of stopped playing and focused on on work for the next few years. And until I was at university and someone you know, said, magic isn't the same. Magic is different. Magic, they've done stuff to make sure you, you don't get this slow increase in power over time. So I, I resisted for a while. And then I, I realized everyone around the Roleplay Society uh, around the, the sci-fi appreciation society, everyone seemed to be playing magic, so I decided to give it a go.
0: That's so funny that you kinda had to get egged into playing magic. But of course, I then, you know, tried ma- magic and
1: bought a teamer deck. Uh, I should have chosen Abzan. I should have chosen Abzan. <laughs> um, I, it was right, it was the very, it was basically the week after Khan started, I bought a, you know, an intro pack. I wanted to go for something which was big and stompy, and I was told, you know what? Team is the best for that. Uh huh. They have, you know, because technically they, they revolve around having big creatures. Right. But as as we all know, the stompy clan ended up being Abzan with siege rhino and 4-4 four, four indestructible hex-proof dudes and stuff like that. Yep. Uh, and so I sort of got into, you know, started playing that, and I also realized that there was a week, every week I could go and play a tournament where I got to play a whole range of different people. Uh huh. Uh, rather than just, you know, me and one other person playing over and over again, Uh I actually get to play a range of different people every single week. That's great. The funny thing is that the person who got me to play, he bought, at the same time, he bought a Soul deck. Uh Uh-huh. And um, he actually had very little idea of how to play, I now realize. Uh Uh-huh. And he stopped almost immediately. He stopped going and said, I actually need to focus on work, and, you know, focus on work for the rest of the time. And I then had to find my own way. And so I had a couple of times where I got lost in, in town and stuff, but I didn't know my way around very well. You know, eventually I managed to sort of learn the route there. And I've been going basically every single week I possibly can ever since.
0: And just for reference for the audience, Richard is visually impaired and he has been featured on The Nerdist, the front page of Reddit by Star City Games. Yes, I was. Yes. I just think it's incredibly interesting that you figured out you needed to use a Braille typewriter on sleeves. Yes,
1: I use a Perkins Brailler named after a guy who also set up the uh, the blind school out in America, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, the Perkins Institute out in America. Um, looks like an old-fashioned typewriter, uh, weighs about 10 pounds, about five kilos.
0: So you type out everything on a card sleeve, and you said earlier that you shorthand some of the the text, right? Some of the keywords and rules?
1: Yes. So I have to find, uh, different keywords and symbols. There are multiple codes in Braille. You have grade one, which is simply letters, A to Z. But then you have grade two, which is sometimes it's a letter on its own means a word, like the letter D on its own means do, letter E means every, or you could have combinations of letters or symbols. So a a specific dot followed by a D will actually mean the word day. Uh, that dot followed by a Q will mean question, but that Q on its own means quite. There's a whole load of sort of different ways to do symbols which mean entirely different things in different contexts. For example, on Wooded Foothills, where at the moment I see WD, I know it's Wooded Foothills. None, no other cards start with that WD followed by some sort of space. Uh huh. And if I'm running a card in my deck, I know what it does. I don't need to read its card text every time. Uh huh. Initially, I would study all my cards. I watch all the spoiler videos. I watch all the, um, card analysis. And so when I'm playing games with people, nine times out of ten, when someone plays a card, I will know what that card is and uh-huh. does and understand its place, what it means their strategy is basically is. I uh, possibly spent a bit too much time during my degree doing that, mm-hmm. but that's entirely another matter entirely. But uh, <laughs> it's, it certainly is... um I spend a lot of time learning all the cards in the format. I do forget some, and occasionally I'll ask someone to read a card text to me, uh, specifically words like may and must. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, when I'm brailing a card, I will almost, I will almost ignore all the relevant stuff on it, mm-hmm. apart from maybe just putting the word "may" or "must." Uh, in, I'll make sure that that is, it is explicit, ah. whether it's a may or must, just because I know that a card, what a card does, but whether it's a may or must ability is, you know, more is more likely to be something which I don't remember the exactly which way it is. Very cool. That's how I I do that. I cut it down to the things which I might not remember about the card, rather than the actually important stuff on the card, because I remember all the important stuff.
0: That is fascinating. Who taught you to play Magic?
1: It was a friendly Bulgarian who lived in the room opposite me here at Lancaster, and he was a casual Magic player. And he bought uh, his Soul Tide deck at the same time as I bought my uh, Teamer deck. And we started by like, playing each other. And then he took me down to the local game store. Well, the, the cafe that sells magic and runs F&M. Uh-huh. And I uh, started playing there every week. And then he almost immediately stopped playing, having sort of taught me the basic rules. Teaching me the basic rules probably wasn't as difficult a thing as it could have been. Uh-huh because, well, because I had already been playing Yu-Gi-Oh! So I had an idea of roughly how card games worked. Uh-huh. Although getting used to the idea that you could attack someone directly um, was weird because obviously in Yu-Gi-Oh! you attack creatures and then when they have no creatures left, you then attack them directly.
0: The funny thing was that when I was a kid and I first started off, I always wanted to just attack the creatures. I was like, oh my gosh, that's a bad creature. I want to get rid of that. And people have to keep telling me, Sam, you cannot attack creatures. You have to attack the player and you just have to cross your fingers. They block with that creature if you wanted to get rid of it. I had no idea there were even like removal spells back in the day. (laughs) So I was like, "Uh, oh, this is hard.
1: (laughs) I have always favored green, which is uh, the color that you need to play if you want to fight creatures. So I ended up playing and because of... He dropped out. I had to find my own way to the the game store. And as a result, I've sort of had to become friends with the people there. Very quickly sort of got to know the judge, uh, Mm -hmm. the local judge, because obviously that could have been quite a flaw had the local judge been, you know, someone who uh, got flustered, you know, went, oh, you've been awkward about it. But Uh she was very much uh, relaxed and said, "Okay, oh, that's interesting. And so she's the one who you know then later wrote an article about me um, and sort of posted that on the Internet. And she's also contacted uh, the people, the referees, before I turned up at the GP.
0: Uh, Wow, Imogen, if you're listening to this right now, you are an angel and you are just wonderful. And this just speaks so highly of the quality in the community of the judges out there in the Magic community. Shout out to all the judges out there for a judge to go out of their way to let a large tournament know that you'll be on your way and that everyone should be looking out for you and taking care of you. I think that's great stewardship and that's great leadership. I think what
1: I find... Most amazing about the way Imogen acted was that having you know, played Yu-Gi-Oh um, with you know, braille sleeves, I actually didn't really think of there being anything particularly odd about playing with brailled sleeves. You know, I thought it would be a totally normal thing. Uh, okay, no one's done it before, but you know, it's a perfectly normal thing. And she didn't particularly act like it was anything particularly strange. Mm-hmm. and since then i've realized that it is totally unique and it is totally rare and uh no one else does this and actually it could be something that people could raise objections to you know the fact that technically my, my cards are marked or whatever
2: mm-hmm.
1: um if i wanted to cheat i could shuffle in certain ways or whatever but you know i'm also totally aware of the fact that people could just as easily you know if not more easily cheat against me so mm-hmm all my life I've sort of brailed against the possibility of cheaters I one of the people we used to play Yu-Gi-Oh with uh, I started playing Yu-Gi-Oh with at the very very start of playing Yu-Gi-Oh we were fairly sure he was cheating but he was the one he was the only one of us who had enough sight to, to tell if anyone else was cheating mm-hmm. so he could he was fairly sure he was looking through his cards and we just couldn't see him doing it
2: hmm.
1: he was also making up we also know for a fact that he made up a lot of the abilities that the Yu-Gi-Oh cards could do <laughs> he just uh, made up he just made yeah, things up because he, he could he could see the cards and would say oh yeah Yes, um, uh, Dark Magician's back ability, uh, which I'm fairly sure we looked up later and uh, many years later and realized Dark Magician doesn't have a back ability. There is no back effect.
0: That is too funny. Okay, so this is a great segue into into a topic I wanted to ask you about is, Mm -hmm. what are your feelings about cheating, especially in your situation when you're visually impaired? What are things that you do to protect against it?
1: Okay, putting my visual impairment aside, cheating is absolutely abhorrent. If cheaters are scum, that it is it is absolutely it's a it's a card game it's actually for fun yeah and you are so determined to win that it's just it makes no sense it's a, it's a card game it's a game there's no really high stakes i mean it's up, sometimes there are high stakes and part of me feels that there shouldn't be high stakes in the cuz it's a game it's yeah. a game it's not <laughs> It's, it's a card game. You sh- there shouldn't be high, high enough stakes that you're willing to cheat. It should be all about fun. I When when I used to play Yu Gi Oh!, I, I used to watch the uh, Yu Gi Oh! GX series, uh-huh. where it is all about the game. It's all about, you know, you have these people who are trying to be serious, then you have Jaden Yuki bursting in going, I'll tell you what your problem is, dude! You're just not having enough fun! <laughs> you, know, so, you, know, um, you know, I'll beat you with friendship. And stuff like that. And, uh, it's, that's what that's what card games are about. They're about having fun. Um, the adrenaline is you can get enough adrenaline from will I top deck the right card? If you're cheating, then it just I mean if you if you mana weave, if you look at the top card, if you do the um, the uh, the the cheat scry where you um,
0: the cheat scry
1: where, where you where you you're drawing your first seven cards and you accidentally pick up two cards uh-huh. as your seventh card and then go oh sorry put it back is is one way that I've I've heard of people cheating. Uh huh. The horrible thing is that I, I when I'm drawing cards, occasionally I do pick up an extra card by mistake, and because uh, I have my cards stored uh, in a box uh, vertically, so I can slide them upwards out of the box, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you know two cards slide up, and I just quickly slide the other one back down. Yeah, I cannot see what that card is. I couldn't, you know, it would take me about a half a second of feeling what that card was to tell what it is. I cannot tell what that card is uh-huh. from doing that. But I know that it looks like cheating because people do cheat that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, There are so many ways that you can cheat, and it looks like an honest mistake, which is, for people who make honest mistakes, that is, it's a horrible feeling to know that you might even give the impression that you're cheating. If you are cheating and you are, you know, mana weaving or whatever, I hate that idea that someone could cheat at this kind of game. It's just fun. Enjoy it. I do occasionally take the idea of Yu-Gi-Oh! GX a bit too far, and I do start uh saying draw as I draw cards in a very enthusiastic manner and uh doing all sorts of over-enthusiastic gestures as I play. Most most notably that people have commented on is I, I have I have told people that there there is only one way to pronounce uh the flip side of Westdale Abbey. Uh-huh. Uh it is pronounced Ormondile
0: because
1: <laughs> you, you, you can't you can't just flip it over and say Ormandial. That's not the right pronunciation.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes when I flip Ormandal, I basically say, are you going to scoop? Because I'm basically going to win now. (laughs) That's how I've been pronouncing it. I wanted to go back a little bit and you were talking about cheating. Um, Fabrizio and Terry got suspended for cheating at GP Manchester. I did hear about that. Yeah. And he was mana weaving and people were not so happy about that.
1: Well, I, having, I I didn't look into it too deeply, but from what things I've, you know, I, I do follow a lot of YouTube channels and I heard people talking about it and talking about the things that he said afterwards. And one of his excuses was, sometimes I forget to shuffle. Is, well, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't know if that, if that's been taken out of context, but I didn't really feel that people were quite as amazed by that as would have made sense. Also particularly the fact that people were saying uh, we're, if, you know, if someone's forgetting to shuffle, well that's kind of ridiculous because surely the other person would notice I in particular would like to point out that not all of us could notice yeah if an opponent didn't shuffle I, I do uh, grab hold of someone's deck um, for a while now I, I've started sort of shuffling other people's decks, which is you know something you're, you're encouraged to do you're encouraged to cut at least, or uh, actually shuffle the deck, which I do do when I'm playing You know, at the start of the game. Although I wouldn't do that mid-game. So if he had an effect that meant he looked through his deck and mana wove while he was doing that, then I would just cut it.
0: Yeah, I was at a Grand Prix trial about two weeks ago, and I was sitting down with an opponent, and we were just chit-chatting after the round. And he said to me, Oftentimes when I size up my opponent, we shuffle and cut and I pass my deck over to my opponent, I can tell if a player is newer or older depending on their very next action. If a player just cuts my deck, I can tell that they've been playing for just a year or so. But if they pick up my deck and they shuffle, 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 then I know that they have been playing for a much longer period of time. And I notice this a lot on streams of like professional players. I notice that professional players shuffle a lot. On a fetch land, on something, I see good four, five, six shuffles.
1: Uh, I shuffle for a ridiculous amount of length of time with my own deck. And then I will give two or three shuffles, if not more, to my opponent's deck at the start of the game. Although I will not shuffle if my opponent sh- you know, shuffles up during the game doing some sort of search effect. I will then you know, start to cut at that point because time becomes an issue. Right. It is true that my games do often go to time at FNM. I personally think that's more to do with the fact that my, my, st- my style of play. Mm-hmm. It's more to do with the fact that I play very grindy decks. You know, so it is true that I I may go slightly slower, and uh, I have been told by certain some other players who I do trust uh, that I am slightly slower than the average player, but not much.
0: Yes, and because of your visual impairment, you always memorize the game state.
1: Yes, I do. When I used to play Yu-Gi-Oh with my friends, he's actually slightly blind than I am. I've got a little bit of sight in my left eye, so I can see a little bit. I can see a small amount enough to sort of for navigation and you know, so I don't collide with. The, Mm Objects. However, he could see even less, uh, basically just colors. Uh, not, well, not even colours actually, just light and dark. So he would sit on his bed playing Yu-Gi-Oh on his bed. I would be sat at my desk with my back to him, and we'd be playing Magic, uh, playing Yu-Gi-Oh like that, just totally unconnected to each other. We didn't need to be facing each other particularly, as long as we could hear each other. That's all that mattered. We used to play uh, Yu-Gi-Oh over the phone, um, all sorts. So we, we never sort of we never looked at each other's fields. So I sort of got quite good at remembering what he had. Sometimes I make
0: mistakes. And I think that makes you a better player.
1: I like to think so. Not sure if it does, but I like to think so. I have been playing ever since Origins. I have been playing the pre-release events. I had to turn up a couple of hours early and open my packs with a judge watching at at Lancaster. I've had the judge opening the packs with me uh, in London. I've done one in London where the judge uh, was aware of me opening the packs, but it was just another person who was opening that, you know, help me open my packs and then i have the same amount of time for deck building but then while everyone else is deck building i am sleeving up and previously i would braille the cards i had to braille each sleeve for a new card Uh Um, however that's pretty sleeve intensive Uh Um, and i get a whole load of janky cards which i'm never going to use again right so what I've actually done now is I've got a set of different colored sleeves, brailed with numbers. Uh, I've got 16 ones, I've got eight, I think, what, well, possibly nine twos, uh, about six threes, and so on. And, uh, the idea is I can bra- I can sleeve up any limited size deck with those numbers, even accounting for some degree of repetition if I get multiples of the same card. Uh huh. Um, I can usually cover that many uh, of the same card unless I get a ridiculous number of, you know, I mean, technically you could pull 12 of the same card uh, from a sealed pack, but that's extraordinarily unlikely.
0: Okay, so run that through uh, one more time. So what you do is that you braille up sleeves ahead of time. With numbered sleeves. With numbered sleeves. So you've got a bunch that say one and a bunch that say two and a few less that say three
1: and then less that say four, a few less that say five, and then by the time I get to
0: six, uh, I think I may have three sixes, but from
1: seven onwards, it's all twos up to uh, about, I think, 12, and then above 12, it's all one odds. And then I've got a few extra ones, which I've brailed as 54, uh, 72, and stuff like that, which uh, act as sort of wild cards if I have actually got too many uh, for one number. And then I, so then what I do is I then get a piece, of, a separate piece of paper, a braille, a piece of braille paper. And rather than having to put everything into short form and braille up each card individually, I can write number one, forest, number two, mountain, number three, plains, number four, you know, whatever. I, I, I write whatever. And then if it's, uh, you're know, being a new set, I can also write, uh, number three, uh, uh number four, near Heath Chaplin. Three one lifelink, Uh, ex uh, pay for mana exile from grave. Put two one one flyers.
0: Oh, I. Get and so it. I can
1: write a little. I can write out in slightly more detail what each card does.
0: Oh, okay. So um,
1: on this piece of paper, and it's much quicker than having to you know because to to put uh, you got to sort of line up a sleeve, roll it into the machine, write your stuff, shortening everything down to very precise amounts, and then roll it out, get the next one in, roll it in, put the text on very carefully, and roll it out and keep doing that. that. That takes a lot of time. But just brailing a sentence on a piece of paper and then go to a new line and braille the next sentence, it's much faster. And so I'm able to cut down the amount of time.
0: Ah, okay, I get it now. So what you're doing is that you're basically indexing every single card, one through 50 something, and that you have many, like, obviously, lands are going to be the most common. So you're going to have your primary land, which is in one. So you're going to bring like, you know, eight to 12 of those. And then I get it now. So then as things yeah, become So that's
1: that's why I have 16 ones printed. Got because it. if I were running a mono coloured deck, then I would only probably need sixteen of that land. But uh if I were running a two coloured deck, the most of the second one I'd need would be uh something like a, a nine eight split. So I only need eight of that one. Ah. Or possibly a 9-9. Nine, nine. So I've actually got 9 of, of number 2 in case I want a 9-9 nine, nine space and I'm running some sort of uh, deck which is land intensive. Uh, then there's only, I think, 6 because 6-6-6, six, 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 uh, 6 of each. I'm never going to have 8-19 lands. Right. I, I, if I had 21 lands, then I would need 7 of 3s. But I don't. you don't run twen- 21 land decks in limited. So I only need six of those um then i have about four in the four five and six region because how often do you get four ofs in limited very rarely but it does happen so i've accounted for that and so and then that's why it gets less and less as you go on
0: yeah you just basically have a whole bunch that are like threes or even less and then you have a whole bunch that are like two ofs and a whole bunch that are just one ofs
1: i mean technically i could go up to uh about if I if I were running a three colored deck, I would have had sixteen lands, and I had two of every single one. Then I would start to struggle to have everything sleeved correctly. But that's where the jokers would come in, the joker type cards. So the fifty-four, I would you know include that with whatever card was in fourteen.
0: Exactly, because they both end
1: in four, and then you know I then because they're brailled with unique numbers. Correct, I can sort of remember. Okay, fifty-four, fourteen, they they work together. And stuff like that, so that's why I sort of have those Joker ones That is
0: amazing, I get it now
1: It worked quite well in the last pre-release In the, in fact, in one of the last pre-releases I did I decided at the last moment to join in I did their morning one and decided at the last moment to join in their afternoon one Uh huh. And so I pretty much, I started about 10 minutes before everyone else started opening their packs And I had finished about... 10 minutes into the uh the first round. So in all, in all it took me about maybe half an hour more than everyone else. Uh-huh. You know before using this system it had been taking me about sort of 2 hours more than everyone else. Uh so it's definitely reduced which is particularly exciting because the main reason I wanted to do this and cut down the amount of time it took for doing the uh, uh deck building was I wanted to give draft a go because mm-hmm. draft is Obviously, after you know Standard, it seemed fairly obvious that sealed would be fairly difficult, fairly difficult, probably impossible to do. And, you know, I and uh, Imogen found a way around it. Imogen was, you know, key to making it uh, possible. You know, sort of saying, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll turn up right. uh, two hours early and, you know, help you debt bill. So, you know, together we, we made that one work. And so now I've looked at draft and thought, yeah, sure, I can do the draft.
2: Very so, cool.
1: Having won a whole load of packs from uh, GP side events at GP Manchester, I have convinced a group of my friends to do a Shadows of Rinnestrad draft with me. Uh-huh. I am on Saturday going to be doing my first ever draft. Wow. Whether that's going to be feasible, I will soon find out.
0: Interesting. What kind of prep do you have to do for that, Richard?
1: Well, I have watched a lot of draft videos. As I've said before, I study all the cards coming out at a set. So I do know what all the cards do. I look at all the set reviews because also I need to... I want to be good in the, the sealed events. So I do spend a lot of time looking at... Uh, people's set reviews and sealed reviews and stuff. And I do also watch a lot of uh, YouTube videos with people drafting Shadows of River So I know what most of the cards do. Whenever I open a pack, I I get someone to read to me the cards. I always ask them to read it to me as if it were a draw. Mm So start from the front and work backwards, work towards the back. And... In my head, I do sort of work out what my first pick would be. So I've I've already sort of, in my head, I'm already a drafter. But obviously, I've never actually tried drafting yet. So that's something I'm quite excited to try.
0: Richard, I hope everything goes well. I know you're going to have a lot of fun either way. Thank you very much. Richard, I have some rapid fire questions for you if you're ready. I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Of the five colors of Magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Green.
1: Absolutely green. The moment I started playing, it was was Tima that I started with, and I wanted just to play big creatures and turn them sideways and hit people. The first cards that I fell in love with were uh, Hydra Broodmaster, who's a 7-7 for 6, who makes stupid numbers of other creatures, and Terror Stomper, who's an 8-8 Trample for 6. Those were the the cards I wanted to win with. Almost every deck I've ever built, Um, certainly every good deck I've ever built, and most of the bad ones, have been green. Um, Occasionally splash, or usually splashing another colour, but they've always been green.
0: Richard, question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Ooh.
1: I can't think of anything right now. Possibly, one thing I I would like to change uh, is... To make magic online accessible. Uh-huh. However, that's a big thing that I would have to, basically I'd have to go and work on, work with uh, Wizards of the Coast for multiple years to be able to make it accessible without making it totally and utterly trash for everyone else to use. Uh-huh. That is the final frontier that I would like to one day maybe uh, work on. But apart from that, no, I don't think there's anything that I'm
0: particularly wanting to change. Richard, question number three. If you could give something to every magic player, what would it be?
1: Could I say a million
0: pounds? <laughs> you could. You can. Um,
1: hmm. A playset of every card that ever existed. A playset of the entire collection, because then anyone could build any deck. It'd be nice to have no format prohibitively expensive. It would be no deck would be prohibitively expensive. I, th- I think it's awful that there's cost is a reason not to play certain decks or certain formats. Mm-hmm. I disagree with the idea, the entire concept of the reserved list, mm-hmm. um, that there's, there's cards which Wizard of the Coast won't print, not because uh, it's beneficial to them, but because certain people have bought large amounts of this certain card and are holding them so that they get more expensive and they can make more profit out of the people who are trying to play the game. Yeah. I think the fact that we're being held ransom in certain respects by people who are buying out in order to make a profit and push up card prices, that's that's just nasty. That's just unfair. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a play set of every card. I love that. Also, people will then be able to play Momia Basic in paper.
0: <laughs> Richard, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering?
1: I see Emrakul. I see uh, Nicobolus. I see a mechanized city that revolts against its people. <laughs> Despite it having revisited it recently, I think I foresee a return to Ravnica.
0: Another a return to return to Ravnica.
1: Something like that, yes. And possibly even another return to Zendikar. Mark Rosewater has himself said that he has regrets about Battle for Zendikar, because he said instead of being returned to Zendikar, it was more like return to Rise of the Eldrazi. It didn't have the feel or the flavor or the excitement of Zendikar. It had all the horror of Rise of the Eldrazi. Yeah. And I think he he himself and a lot of the design team would like to go back and do Zendikar as it's recovered.
0: Interesting,
1: And have that sort of exciting, fresh, hidden treasures and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I see us returning to Zendikar again. Probably, that's probably not going to be for a little while, but I do see that happening at some point.
0: Last, Richard, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience, like where they can find you on social media or connect with you?
1: I don't really do social media. I started doing Facebook recently, but uh, my friends have been complaining for many years that I'm not social media savvy enough. So, no, I don't have a Twitter account. Uh, I, I I do not tweet. If you really want to look me up on Facebook... I will be confused and ask you how you know me. <laughs> um, and But, you know, I probably will start talking to you. I'm, I do tend to enjoy talking to random strangers if they approach me. I have no requests apart from if you do know someone who's visually impaired and is the right person for Magic Gathering, someone who is geeky slash nerdy slash enjoys strategy gaming or stuff or stuff like that, Roleplay games and Magic the Gathering are my computer games. I would be such a hard computer game addict if I were Mm sighted. Magic and tabletop roleplaying are my, my online games. So I would definitely say get someone into Magic for my sake. Bring more people in. Yeah, I'd love to one day be meeting other blind people and losing to other blind players.
0: Okay, that sounds great. Well, Richard, I really wanted to thank you, and I wanted to acknowledge you as well. You put a lot of generous energy out there, and it's wonderful to see someone like you playing Magic for the love of the game, and I hope that you continue going to FNMs and GPs, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you on the Pro Tour one day.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope to see you on the Pro Tour too.
0: Well, that's it for my conversation with Richard Wheatley. Since our recording, Richard has taken the next step in his journey and played in GP London, which was Kaladesh Limited. Richard made day two and was able to draft. Congratulations, Richard. Thank you so much for your energy and your love of magic. Links and pictures will be in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Thank you so much for listening to Kitchen Table Magic. If you haven't done so yet, remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. Please leave a review in iTunes. I love hearing your feedback on the show. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.
1: It's a fusion, really. It's like um, there's this in the, in the hardcore slash punk subculture. There's this thing called hard styling, which is sort of this ironic, like, uh, pose for pictures where you just, like, look as tough as possible. And so, you know, if you're taking a big old squad pic or something
0: like that, that's what you do is you just stand there and you, it, it's, like, kind of making fun of yourself in a way because, like, I, I'm pretty involved in the hardcore, like, punk subculture and, like, it's kind of like making fun of yourself
1: because a lot of those people do some, like, macho posturing and, you know, look as tough as possible. So it's, like, really funny to, like, take pictures with, like, dumb shit and look as tough as possible. So in my mind, I would always find like some dude like passed out at a party and like that or and take a picture next to him like that or something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's just funny to kind of like reframe it from like, you know, that like your friends or something like that to like something that's really funny that you would observe and do it next to that.
0: I'm talking to Sid Blair, famously known for hard styling with all those butt cracks that resulted in his suspension and what erupted online as Crackgate. Sid shares with us his life before and after Crackgate, playing magic and enjoying life with his friends. There's a lot of interesting things that I learned about Sid that I'm excited to share. You don't want to judge a book by its cover, and you don't want to miss my interview with Sid Blair. Heads up, I won't be bleeping anything next time. All on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.